Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. If you build it, they will come. That's the hope in theory when people release a new app. And as I record this, it's the day that HBO Max has launched a very hyped new service that people have been talking about for months and months because it was linking together the HBO family with Turner Classic Movies and all of the different Warner services. Now there's the Studio Ghibli films and so much offered. The only thing is you cannot find it on Roku or Fire TV or Smart TV. So right now, basically nobody is watching this thing on their television and just opting to try to beam it to their TV through the phone or tablets. So it was kind of a weird time to release it when you can't really watch it. It sort of reminds me of the Criterion app when that first launched, the Criterion channel, and you could only watch it on like one service. So obviously some kinks need to be worked out, but I am hopeful that this new app will be cool. There's some great new original stuff that I'm excited about. We'll see how much of it was recorded before the quarantine set in, and... I looked at the lineup when I was choosing the movies for this week, and I did find one on HBO. It isn't specific to HBO Max, so you should still be able to watch it in one of the many HBO app services that are compatible with whatever player you have, from Roku to Fire TV to Smart TV to Google or whatever you use. This is also the week that I've decided to flip around the release dates of these pods. Normally, I was releasing Watch With Jen at the start of the week to kick off the week with a few movies that you should check out and then sort of ending the week with one or two drops of my Watch With Jen and Friends, the discussions that I have with guests. But I started to think about the fact that things are slowly opening up again or people are working from home. I hope you're working from home. This opening up America too quickly thing is just so alarming to me. So I want everyone to stay safe. But I started to think about the fact that with working from home, you're not maybe able to watch as many movies Monday through Friday. So I wanted to release this towards the end of the week when the weekend comes and you might be in the mood to scour for some new things. So I hope you enjoy this. I'm flipping them around, kicking off the week with a discussion you can listen to on your lunch break or your commute or just to get away from the news of the world. And then I will also, of course, drop extra ones here and there as they get recorded again. And then closing out the week with these film recommendations for you including the five that I'm going to talk about right now. The first film that I'd like to talk about today is one you may already be familiar with. I don't expect the younger generation to know it, perhaps, but it's one of my 80s favorites. It is available on HBO, so as I mentioned earlier, you should be able to watch this on any of your apps or services if you are a subscriber to HBO. The film is Jumpin' Jack Flash. It was released in 1986, 
Originally, the movie was supposed to star Shelley Long, and it kept getting rewritten on set. It was basically a disaster. And the film started off with the director, Howard Zeff. Eventually, star and director changed. Penny Marshall was brought on to direct, and this is her feature filmmaking debut. And it is also her star's first vehicle as the lead. That star, of course, is Whoopi Goldberg. This is after she dazzled everyone in the color purple. And Jumpin' Jack Flash gave her an amazing vehicle to show what she can do. The film was written by a number of people. As I mentioned earlier, it was a disaster getting rewritten on the set all the time. So keeping that in mind, a few of the writers use pseudonyms that are actually pretty entertaining. So it was originally a story that was conceived by David Franzoni, who is a name you might remember. He wrote Gladiator, Amistad... King Arthur. The man does a lot of epics and he's well versed in history. So it was his idea and he wrote a script. Then Charles Shire and Nancy Myers came on, but they used pseudonyms. So you can tell they maybe weren't as proud of this feature. Their pseudonyms were J.W. Melville and Patricia Irving. I just love that. I think that's really creative. Chris Thompson is another writer listed on the project. He wrote for Bosom Buddies, Laverne and Shirley, The Larry Sanders Show, so the man is definitely funny. And there's also an uncredited rewrite that was done by Stephen E. D'Souza. He wrote, of course, Die Hard and 48 Hours. And I think the movie is kind of a nice blend of all their talents. It is screamingly funny one that I remember watching way too much as a kid. It's sort of funny. It's amazing that I didn't just like talk like a trucker, basically, because I watched, I mean, I watched a lot of movies, but I remember watching like Beverly Hills Cop, Jumpin' Jack Flash, and Midnight Run, like over and over and over again as a kid. And Jumpin' Jack Flash means a lot to me personally, because I also remember how much It made my grandma laugh. She loved Whoopi Goldberg. She basically owned a number of movies Whoopi was in that weren't even good. She would go to the store, and if Whoopi was in it, she would just buy it and bring it home. She did that for a couple of her favorite actors. Tom Cruise was another one. So I remember a really awkward day where she bought Cocktail. We had never seen it, and so she and I just watched Cocktail together when I was a kid. But anyway, so we were kind of a liberal family, but I remember watching Jumping Jack Flash with her and just enjoying like three generations, my mom and her and I laughing so much. So it always brings that back to me. I also think that the film was kind of ahead of its time. Yes, it takes kind of a Cold War theme. It stars Whoopi Goldberg as Terry Doolittle. Uh, She is a computer operator at a Manhattan bank. Her job is basically to input transactions from other banks around the world into the computer system. And at the end, she's supposed to type the phrase, end trans. Except Whoopi, being her friendly self, enjoys giving love advice. She exchanges recipes. She's got all kinds of friends around the world at the other banks. 
and her boss is constantly reaming her out for these long-winded exchanges that are not professional. He wants her to cut the chit-chat and just do her job. As soon as he says that, she gets yelled at near the beginning of the film, she starts getting cryptic messages from a man who goes by Jumpin' Jack Flash and gives her the clue, find the key and sing with me. And so (laughs) there's a really hilarious sequence where she goes and buys like the sheet music for Jumpin' Jack Flash. But before that, she tried to listen and dissect the words in her house at night, like playing it over and over again. And as she says in the movie, has some weird ass lyrics. Like she gets them wrong all the time. And it is just hilarious. She figures out the key from the sheet music, enters it in and starts in exchange with this man, Jumpin' Jack Flash, who tells her he's a British agent trapped in Eastern Europe. He's being pursued by the KGB and is seeking a safe exit back home. So he wants her to go to the British consulate and try to arrange his passage home. Of course, as soon as she starts looking into this and meeting some of the people that he gives her as contacts, her life is in danger and people come out of the woodwork, go after her. It leads to one wildly funny confrontation after another. It's also a good action movie. There is so much going on in this film. It was shot by Matthew F. Leonetti, who shot Poltergeist, Fast Times at Ridgemont High for Amy Heckerling, and Strange Days for Catherine Bigelow. So he was used to working with women. He's worked with a number of amazing directors throughout his career. So it's a polished looking film, as well as just being a fun 80s Cold War mystery comedy. The cast is really what sells it. In addition to Whoopi Goldberg, we have Stephen Collins, John Wood, Carol Kane, Annie Potts, Jonathan Price. There's a number of Saturday Night Live cameos. John Lovitz, Michael McKeon, Phil Hartman, Jim Belushi. Also, Tracy Ullman has a cameo that's very memorable and very funny. So I can't recommend it enough. If you have seen it, I hope you like it. And if you haven't seen it or it's been a really long time, give it a whirl because I think you will find yourself just pleasantly entertained, surprised, and laugh yourself silly. The second film is available on Star's channel right now. It is Adventureland from 2009, writer-director Greg Matola. Matola discusses the film as belonging to this quote-unquote very small genre of stories that are about the worst summer ever turning into one of the most transformative experiences of your life. It's a semi-autobiographical movie starring Jesse Eisenberg, that wonderful actor who I first saw in Roger Dodger, and then, of course, The Squid and the Whale. Later on, he really broke big in The Social Network. He is wonderful in this. As a recent college graduate... In 1987, the movie takes place in the year of Rock Me Amadeus, which gets some very entertaining play throughout the movie. And he has just graduated 
finds out that instead of going backpacking in Europe or doing what he wants to do, there's been an economic turn and his father has lost a good deal of his salary during the Reagan administration in 1987. Knowing he needs to get a job, he realizes that his liberal arts degree hasn't really prepared him with the much needed on-the-job experience you have to have to get employment of any kind or worth. That's always sort of a double-edged sword, like, no, I don't have experience. How can I get experience to get the job when you don't have it? That kind of thing. So he decides he wants to go to grad school, maybe see if he can sort of turn that liberal arts degree into something that will help him prepare more for the real world, and finds himself applying at a quote-unquote fantastic Pennsylvania amusement park. His new employers could care less that he's really like a college graduate. All they want is somebody with a pulse. These are Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader. So he begins working at this Adventureland, meeting his co-workers, including Martin Starr, who's always funny, and finds a kindred spirit in a worldly, intelligent, and just flat-out adorable girl named M played by Kristen Stewart in one of her first really good roles. She'd always kind of stood out in whatever she was in, as far back as Panic Room, the David Fincher movie with her and Jodie Foster. But this gives her a great opportunity to show, no, she's more than the girl in Twilight. Her character kind of strikes me as sort of a cross between Shirley MacLaine's in The Apartment, and Kate Hudson's in Almost Famous. It has a Billy Wilder aspect to it, which might be for real, because Greg Matola is a very knowledgeable film lover, and he does have a, an affinity for classic movies, so that might have worked in. Definitely, I think, a little bit of the Billy Wilder aspect. A love triangle develops between Jesse Eisenberg, who has a crush on his friends with potential girl M. And M is having an affair herself with the married, hot, older musician janitor Ryan Reynolds, who is playing a totally against type role. He is not the clean cut Ryan Reynolds we saw in his early movies. This is, of course, before like Deadpool or anything like that. But it comes after Definitely Maybe, which was a nice, lovely romance. So you take that clean-cut Ryan Reynolds and you stick him into this, where he's one of those married but cheating guys. And it was a bit of a shock, I remember, when I first saw this back in 09, when I actually reviewed it. And I thought everyone was wonderful in the film. Matola says he wrote it in the spirit of a short story after a creative light bulb went off when people started sharing their lackluster first jobs on the set of Undeclared, which he worked on the Judd Apatow series. And he started to recall working in a Long Island amusement park while he went to Columbia University and just began writing as a part of what he considered to be therapy of working out some of his early experiences. And it became this wonderful comedy. It's an interesting choice right after Superbad, which was a huge hit for Matola. And it kind of takes him back to the territory where I first discovered Greg Matola, which was in The Day Trippers, 1996. 
his debut feature, which he wrote and directed, starring Hope Davis and Stanley Tucci. That film is available right now on Criterion Channel, and I've actually written it down as a possible film that I would recommend one week on Watch With Jen. But being as it's the start of summer, we just had Memorial Day, it seemed like Adventureland was calling to me as one of those films that fits the season, especially those little like amusement parks that you have where you bring kids and they ride a train through a park, that kind of thing, or these little rides that pop up and you sort of look at the workers and they're usually kids like college age and wonder about their life. This film just seemed like it fit the season. Of course, it would be even more fitting in a COVID-free world right now. So you think of these places as being like total Petri dishes, but just leave that out of your mind and enjoy this sort of throwback 1987 feature. He manages to blend together the human comedy, pathos, melancholy, the double-edged sword of moving from postgraduate life to adulthood, puts everything front and center. The result is an astute, surprising, bittersweet, instantly relatable movie, and one that I really thought highly of when I first saw it in 09, and it stayed with me, and I encourage you all to give it a shot. So Adventureland, again, is one you can find on Star's channel. I do have to warn you that the next movie comes with a strange side effect, that leaves you wanting to play Don Henley's Dirty Laundry like a thousand times. I'm talking about To Die For from 1995. It is currently playing on Crackle, which is a free service. Everybody can check it out. And with a movie this good, I really hope you do. The film was made by Gus Van Sant, who... I think first kind of broke onto the scene with Drugstore Cowboy. He made My Own Private Idaho. He was a towering figure in new queer cinema at the advent of the late 80s, early 90s, and then started to make more, I guess, mainstream pictures would be the traditional term they would use for it. But I don't know that I would ever consider Gus Van Sant part of the mainstream. I think he's always doing something very different, very unique, and very worthwhile. You never know what he is going to do next. He made Goodwill Hunting, then later made Elephant, Milk. It's always a surprise, and I personally love his work. There are recurring themes. I could do a whole essay on him, and I actually considered doing that. In film school, I did choose Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, but Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, Todd Haynes' Safe, and Gus Van Sant's entire oeuvre were some of the topics I was also considering. Also Richard Linklater's early work and Catherine Bigelow's. I had a number of people, Alice and Anders, whose work I kept coming back to, because I told myself, you can't just write about Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro again, you have to push. So made the decision that I would kind of go for one of our independent American filmmakers or filmmakers doing something very bold and different in my formative years. And Gus Van Sant has always fascinated me, so he was definitely in contention. In To Die For in 95, he made a darkly comic, almost a mockumentary, 
or a faux documentary true crime format, I guess you would call it today. The film was originally offered to Meg Ryan for $5 million. She turned that down. I don't know if it was too paltry for her or she didn't like the content. But whatever the case may be, Nicole Kidman jumped at it, made the film for $2 million, and turned in one of the best performances in her entire career, I believe. The film's screenplay was written by the legendary Buck Henry, co-creator, of course, of Get Smart. He worked on scripts including The Graduate, What's Up Doc, all kinds of classic films were written by Buck Henry. Look him up, I could be here all day reading his credits to you. To Die For was a book by Joyce Maynard, and it was in turn inspired by a story written by Pamela Smart. So it's kind of one person wrote it up based on another thing, based on another thing, sort of like you tell two friends, and then it differs. And by the time it reached Buck Henry's script and Gus Van Sant's film camera, it was definitely its own thing. It's almost expressionistic at times. The score by Danny Elfman is its own animal and drives everything forward. It's amazing. In the movie, Kidman plays a narcissistic, solipsistic woman named Suzanne Stone who just aspires to be on TV almost doesn't care. She just wants to be on television. She wants that level of fame and notoriety and hopes to become like a world famous anchor or a broadcast journalist. She marries a hunky and loving but dumb and old fashioned man played by Matt Dillon, whose family restaurant keeps her financially afloat. He comes from an Italian family. Suzanne takes a job as a part-time secretary at a local cable TV station, and her goal is to climb the ladder all the way up into the big leagues. She makes some headway on that by becoming the weather girl. She's relentless, and she just keeps pushing and pushing. Eventually, after working as a weather girl, she tries to branch out and make a documentary called Teens Speak Out. That brings her to the high school, where she finds her subjects composed of a trio of teens played by Joaquin Phoenix, who's amazing in this, Casey Affleck, who's also extremely good, and Allison Folland, or Folland, who breaks your heart. She is extraordinary. And as Matt Dillon's character pressures her to get pregnant and stay home and sort of do the old-fashioned domestic thing, she feels more and more pressured and seduces Joaquin Phoenix and leads him and the other teens into killing her husband. After her husband is murdered in what the police believe was just a burglary gone wrong, of course, suspicion follows her wherever she goes. The police see some of the footage of her teens speak out and start realizing that she was probably having an affair with Joaquin Phoenix. So there's a whole bunch of intrigue that follows this case as more people start to try to figure out exactly what happened and see if they can pin it on her. Meanwhile, her dead husband's family has mafia connections and her sister-in-law and father-in-law, played by Ileana Douglas and Dan Hedea, are determined to get revenge on this bubble-headed bleach blonde as 
Don Henley would say in his Dirty Laundry, which plays in the film. And it was used in the advertising. I remember not being able to turn on my TV for a little bit in 1995 without hearing that song playing and seeing images of like Nicole Kidman in sort of her weather girl outfits dancing around. It was a phenomenal movie. I still remember going and the shocked laughter that would pop out of people just involuntarily watching this movie. I think we all went in assuming it was going to be maybe more of a crime drama and it's very darkly comedic and people were very shocked they were laughing. It was around this time I also started to realize that people would laugh when they're uncomfortable. I recently just rewatched Fargo for something I'm working on involving Frances McDormand. I've been watching a lot of her films for his side project. And Fargo was a movie that, again, I remember going to and having people laugh at the weirdest of times or be so shocked at what they were seeing. There was like barks of laughter or like, what? And it kind of helped prepare me for watching some of these other dark crime movies in the theater. I remember the same thing happening in A Simple Plan or Fight Club or things like that. And not in the scenes you would expect that are just damn funny, but at times where you're so uncomfortable that some people resorted to laughter. And this was one of those movies that really made me aware of what watching something unusual that's pushing boundaries does to humans watching a film together. So that was fascinating to me. Being Gus Van Sant, he is always interested in the humanity of every single character. And while you think you're watching a movie just specifically about the Suzanne Stone character, he focuses just as hard on the supporting players Ileana Douglas has an incredible sequence at the end of the film that has stayed with me for life. Just the look on her face in the last couple frames of the film. It's incredible. And the three teens. This is the movie that first, for me, made me interested in Joaquin Phoenix and what he could do as an actor. It reminds me of an interview I read in Peter Bogdanovich's book, Who the Hell's In It?, where he focused on actors. And he did a a chapter on River Phoenix. And when he was there, River said, Joaquin is going to be the best actor in our family, or he is the best actor in our family. And initially, you just think, oh, he's being a sweet older brother. And of course, we do not know, because River's life was cut so tragically short and he was on an extraordinary path, that of course he was gonna do great things. But in retrospect, it seems like he was the first one who anticipated the Joaquin Phoenix that we've come to know over the years. And to me, this was him on the cusp of that. This is before then I saw him in Inventing the Abbots, which was also very good, and Gladiator. So I think this helped precipitate that. All in all, it's just a knockout of a film and I urge you to go watch To Die For, and then, hey, queue up some Don Henley and go for it. I will fully admit that when I was selecting movies for my screening series 
at Scottsdale Public Library years ago. One of the driving forces behind what I was choosing, now keep in mind I did have to limit my films to what was available to be shown, rights issues and costs, so to speak, those kind of things were factors, but a main impetus for me was being able to introduce people to some of my favorite actors, filmmakers, people that I thought they should know. And when it came to actors, I was really hoping to acquaint them with some people that I hoped would become household names. And the star of our next film was one of them, Ben Foster, who I first saw in 310 to Yuma. And I mean, I probably saw him in other things. But that is the movie that made me sit up straighter and ask, who is this man? And he is incredible. And that is the same reaction that I was hoping I could impart on the viewers that day. And definitely did. I found myself engaging in a really cool discussion after 310 to Yuma about other movies that you could see with Ben Foster and also getting into his whole relationship uh, for his character in 310 to Yuma with the Russell Crowe character. There is definitely some sort of romantic tension there between those two men I could totally write an essay about and not run out of material for like pages and pages. It's so great. And Foster also starred in one of 2018's best features. The film is the next one that I'd like to recommend this week, Leave No Trace from director Deborah Granick. It is now available on Canopy, which you can find through your library, provided that your library has access to it. How the site works, and it's an app, it's available on Fire Stick, I believe Roku, both Android and Apple, I'm sure, is there's X number of credits. I believe you have 15 for the month, and you're able to watch 15 titles. It's essentially like going to an art house theater or an art house video store for my generation who still misses video stores. And Canopy has an amazing array of films. You have no idea how many films from Canopy I've written down as potential movies to recommend to you guys. I mean, I could just do a five from Canopy selection one week. I could do a whole month of Canopy, but I'm trying to limit it to one per platform per week. So this week's Canopy choice is undoubtedly Leave No Trace, which I think is one of the best movies from 2018. And another one of Ben Foster's just towering portrayals. Every time I see him in something new, I think this is one of our greatest actors working today. And I wish he was as much of a household name as some of the Chris's or some of the stars of the Marvel universe, that kind of thing. But at the same time, there's that old cool punk attitude of like, well, I knew him before you guys did. So, you know... There's some time yet for everybody to jump on the Ben Foster bandwagon. Leave No Trace was written by its director, Deborah Granick, and her producer partner, Anne Rosalini. Together, they also wrote Winter's Bone, which was released a few years earlier and starred Jennifer Lawrence in her breakout role. She also made Down to the Bone, which was produced by Anne Rosalini, and that kind of was a launching pad for... Vera Farmiga, 
It is the film that garnered her her role in Up in the Air for Jason Reitman. So her films are known to give great showcases for its actors. And while its actresses are kind of synonymous with those two films, and this one as well, Thomasin McKenzie is the young woman in this film, and she is phenomenal. They also provide just all-around great vehicles for whoever is in them. As wonderful as Jennifer Lawrence was in Winter's Bone, John Hawks was equally good. And this is another two-hander in Leave No Trace between Ben Foster, who plays an Iraqi vet with PTSD, and he is the father of a 13-year-old daughter named Tom, played by Thomason McKenzie. So it is a nice two-hander between the two actors. The film is based on a novel called My Abandonment by Peter Rock, which in turn was based on a true story. So just like To Die For was based on a thing on a thing, this again is based on a thing on a thing. So it's sort of telling you that even though these films might seem incredibly original, they probably came from somewhere else, somewhere else. And it reminds me of sort of vintage Hollywood. If you watch a lot of classic movies, you'll be amazed to discover how many were remakes and how many came from books and short stories and plays. So it's always interesting to see where these ideas originate. The film premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival to universal acclaim. I have yet to meet a critic who dislikes this movie. It is as good as everyone tells you as well. I know it's bad to watch a movie after you hear the hype, so I do apologize for that. It's like, rein it in, Jen. No, I'm just kidding. But this one really is powerful. It kind of feels like it would make a terrific double feature with Lean on Pete, which is another great movie that came out that year. These are character-driven pieces that take a look at people that would be overlooked in traditional cinema. These are working class people or people on the fringes and it paints an interesting socioeconomic picture of our times. This one is no exception. It is set in Portland, Oregon. In the movie Will, that is Ben Foster's character, and his daughter live in isolation in a public park in Portland and they just go into town for food, supplies. Will makes money selling his VA-issued painkillers to other veterans. He doesn't take them himself. He just sort of doles them out to other people that need it just to m make money to support his daughter. When a jogger happens to see Tom, the daughter, they are arrested and placed in social services. They're given food and a home on a Christmas tree farm. Eventually, he wants to leave. He doesn't like the semblance of normal society. He's not getting treatment for his PTSD, nor does he really want to acknowledge what's going on. He doesn't have the emotional tools or bandwidth to deal with it. Meanwhile, she actually really likes what life can be like and is on the Christmas tree farm, but it's her father. She loves him more than anything, so she follows. And so the film sort of chronicles that coming of age and the realization that sooner or later something is going to have to change 
between the two characters or their relationship and it's a heartfelt movie really beautifully done thomas and mckenzie is somebody who's still up and coming as an actress she's from new zealand in the last couple years she's been in the king jojo rabbit the true history of the kelly gang and i think she'll be continuing to rise if foster is new to you Well, I definitely, of course, would encourage you to check out the James Mangold remake of 310 to Yuma, but also take a look at his work in Hell and High Water, the program where he played Lance Armstrong, did an outstanding job in that, and the two he made for Orrin Moverman, uh, Rampart, and especially The Messenger, which he starred in just like Rampart opposite Woody Harrelson. So do check those out as well. Never one to judge her characters. Here especially because even if we did not know that this was based on a true story, it feels just 100% genuine. Granick, just as she did in sort of the docudrama style, Winter's Bone or Down to the Bone, honors her characters by just staying true to them and letting their actions dictate instead of trying to come in with some idea and then frame everything around it. So it's quite natural. There's a slight neorealist vibe to her work that I like a lot. And I think her strength for doing this goes back to her undergraduate days where she received her bachelor's in political science before eventually getting her MFA in film from Tish. So it's cool to see her sort of honor the earlier area of her studies, what you're interested in and passionate about, and how you decide to apply that later on in your career. So Granick's filmography is fascinating, and she has yet to make a film that isn't powerful, and I recommend them all, but I really hope that you will start with Leave No Trace. The Manchurian Candidate, Birdman of Alcatraz, The Train, Seven Days in May, Seconds. The films of legendary director John Frankenheimer are unparalleled in their excellence, and he's one of cinema's great masters at delivering suspenseful, intelligent pictures for adults. The last film that I'd like to recommend this week is considered by many to be his last great thriller. That's Ronin from 1998. He was to make another one after that. He made Reindeer Games, which is unfairly maligned. I actually thought it was pretty good, but it is no Ronin. I consider this to be one of his great movies. When asked what was it about action movies that drew him in, he said personally character-driven action pieces were the films he looked for when he was personally trying to find something to go see himself. They're the films he wanted to see, and that's what he wanted to make. And Ronan was no exception. It also gave him an opportunity to film once again in France, where he had lived for many years and made other thrillers, including The Train. He also made Grand Prix, Impossible Object, and French Connection 2 in France. So this brought him right back overseas to an area with which he was very familiar. Originally written by John David Zeke, who got the idea for Ronin after he read Shogun as a teen, the film was rewritten by David Mamet, 
under the pseudonym of Richard Weiss. Why the pseudonym, you ask? Well, Mamet says that he made a deal with himself or a promise that unless he was the sole screenwriter credited, he would always use a pseudonym. He was only by David Mamet if it was just by David Mamet. If he's being credited alongside somebody else, he's by, in this case, Richard Weiss. So there's a little ego there. It's Mamet. Of course there is. What do you expect? But it's also the ego we love because that's what makes him freaking great. He was hired mainly to expand Robert De Niro's role and develop plot details, add a love interest, basically just make it a more comprehensive film. And he kind of minimized his role on the picture. But Frankenheimer says that he didn't shoot like word one of John David Zeke's script. And he wrote to the WGA kind of protesting that Zeke and Mamet should share a script credit for this. I think he said, of course, you know, they owed John David Zeke a debt for writing it in the first place and maybe he should have gotten a story credit but it seems like there was a little controversy about the credits and how they were doled out that would not be the thing that this movie would be remembered for when it comes to controversy though and for robert de niro of course i think he wishes it would have been when the movie came out in 1998 It had made headlines in America for a totally different reason. When we first heard about Ronan, it was in tandem with Sex Scandal because Robert De Niro was picked up in France and held for something like nine hours in custody because of his name in some like call girl ring. And by the end of it, they couldn't prove that he was in any way involved except maybe on the periphery that he had had sex with somebody whose name was maybe in the book or maybe she was a call girl like who the hell knows I'm, I'm sure she probably was whatever but they couldn't prove that he had anything to do with this international vice ring which also ensnared some other celebrities at the time I remember it also involved Sylvester Stallone's ex-wife Brigitte Nielsen who was supposed to have been accused of like setting up rendezvous for her clients and their call girls sort of so it involved some high caliber people but Robert De Niro was not having it by the end of this whole scandal he said he would never return to France and yeah so he was definitely soured on France by the end of Ronin I'm hoping that changed over the years I'm not sure I'm not his travel agent so I don't know how these things have gone in the remaining 22 years since Ronin was released but in 98 you were not gonna get him back over to France for the big premiere of this one I can tell you that and it's a shame because he is is wonderful in the film. Yes, of course, I am biased. He is my favorite actor. But it's not just De Niro. The film has a tremendous cast. It stars Jean Reno, who's another one of my favorites. You guys remember him in The Professional. Natasha McElhone, who actually gets a role that allows her to have some agency and like do some shit, which is very cool. So she was very excited and she gets to drive a car in one of cinema's greatest car chases that I've ever seen. It's very, very cool for a woman to watch another woman do this, even if she's 
going up against your man, it is still just top-notch, great action. The film also stars Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, and Jonathan Price. It was shot by Robert Frace. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He is the cinematographer of such notable films as The Lover, Seven Years in Tibet, and The Enemy at the Gates. Ronin, like most movies written by David Mamet, or in this case, rewritten by David Mamet, revolves around the MacGuffin pretty significantly. In this case, it's about a bunch of special operatives who are now like mercenaries for hire, essentially, who are brought in to steal a large metallic briefcase this time or at the beginning of the film it's from a heavily armed convoy we don't really need to know what's in the briefcase all we need to know is they have to get it other people want it now the russian mobs involved and that ups the timetable there's double crosses betrayals secrets more things happen and it's very chaotic so it's pretty convoluted yes just like other david mamet films I brought up The Spanish Prisoner. That was one of my first recommendations on Watch with Jen. And in it, I referenced his great speech on the MacGuffin from On Directing Film, which is a book that I hope if you're interested in film or writing about it, directing it, anything that is on your shelf, because it's one of our great texts on the subject is David Mamet's On Directing Film, which ironically to me is more about storytelling, but that's also probably because I think he had directed maybe like one movie by the time he gave this lecture that formed the book. In it, he says that the MacGuffin is that thing which the hero is chasing. We don't need to know what it is, we just need to know that the hero wants it and we're gonna watch as they try to get it and in this case it is our protagonist who might have some moral cloudiness played by Robert De Niro we know he was hired to do a job by God he is going to do that job owing to John David Zeke's impetus for writing the movie in the first place Shogun there is a great speech that is given in kind of the midpoint of the movie where they talk about the Ronin wandering without a master or those who have let down their master the film has outstanding dialogue obviously it's Mamet that is his signature so we don't really watch a David Mamet movie for the clear-cut plot that takes you from point A to point C. No, I mean, you are watching it for those lines of dialogue. Nobody really says about House of Games, like, you know, what I really liked was the way they structured the poker game or whatever. It doesn't matter. It is all about, you're a bad pony, I'm not going to bet on you. Everyone remembers the dialogue, and this movie is the exact same thing. All I have to do is mention I'm watching this on Twitter, and I get like 20 replies, usually with different lines of dialogue being fired at me instantaneously. And I love that because it's only risen with, I think, the Mammoth lore and grown in fondness over the years now that it's played on cable infinite number of times you can find it now streaming on voodoo and i think also when you look at frankenheimer's career and you realize this probably was his last great picture it's a gorgeous looking movie it's very heavily stylized it was shot entirely with wide angle lenses 
on Super 35. No actor was allowed to wear bright colors, so everything was very muted. But even though they were purposely trying to make it what he called, I believe, the first generation film style of, of shooting, he wanted it to look like the early movies, they even used a process to reduce color and up the intensity of the dark images and the dark hues. So by the time this thing was color corrected, it was looking pretty dark. And it fits because we are in a world of gray with these mercenaries and special ops people for hire. People you think one is good, one is bad, and that all changes or grows increasingly complex as we follow these people on their quest to get that damn MacGuffin briefcase. So I really hope that you enjoy Ronin, not only for the epic car chase at its center, which I think is one of the great car chases ever filmed, personally. I was asked years ago for my favorite stunt in a movie, and this was one that I watched on YouTube, I watched the sequence like five times before I ultimately chose something else. But it would definitely be one of the top contenders. And while you watch it, do appreciate the fact that Frankenheimer is very anti-special effects. So this thing was shot over the course of like four hours with hundreds of professional drivers operating the vehicles. So what you're seeing was really achieved. It's incredible, and I think also kind of heightens the film by putting you right in the seat and not cutting away or going to green screen too much or doing any of that. It makes the sequence better. I hate it when I watch an action film and every two seconds there's a different cut or you're watching something that is so green screened and so VFX produced that you just feel like you're watching a video game and this is nothing like that. It feels like a movie you would have seen in the 1970s in Frankenheimer's heyday and could easily have been set in that same period as well. So I can't say enough good things about Ronin except go watch it. This week I was thinking about how in any other year, usually the summer movie season kind of kicks off around Memorial Day, which is why I picked a huge comedy like Jumpin' Jack Flash, a movie that makes me think of summer with Adventureland, and a great action movie like Ronin. So these might be slightly more familiar to you than a few of the other weeks of movies where you're like, what the hell is she talking about? But some of these movies came out so long ago that I think it's good to call them to your attention now that you can find them easily on streaming. So just to recap, this week we had Jumpin' Jack Flash, which is on HBO. Adventureland is on Stars. To Die For is on Crackle. Leave No Trace is on Canopy. And Ronin is on Voodoo. I want to thank you so much for listening. And I hope you're also okay with the fact that I've swapped around the schedule. So these will be dropping toward the end of the week. I hope you guys have a good one. Take care and I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. I am Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.